From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, March 6th. I'm Marco Werman. Reports of massacres and torture in Syria. President Obama says there's no simple solution, but ultimately, he says, Bashar al-Assad must go. It's not a question of when Assad leaves, or if Assad leaves, it's a question of when. And later, skiing in a war zone. It takes creativity to practice the sport in Afghanistan. They nailed aluminum cans to the bottom of these boards, and they tied them onto their feet with twine, and they're skiing down these mountains. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Activists in Syria are reporting ongoing massacres and torture being conducted by Syrian security forces. And United Nations human rights officials say they've seen a video of patients being tortured at a hospital in Homs, all of which explains a rising international outrage over the violence in Syria. Here's President Obama speaking earlier today. What's happening in Syria is heartbreaking and outrageous. And what you've seen is the international community mobilize against the Assad regime and it's not a question of when Assad leaves or if Assad leaves. It's a question of when. Still, the president continues to resist calls to intervene militarily. Syrian President Assad, meanwhile, is refusing to end his year-long crackdown. Today, he vowed to continue fighting what he calls foreign-backed terrorism. The BBC's Jim Muir is following events in Syria from Beirut. He says Syrian state-run media is broadcasting images of Baba Amr, the neighborhood and homes destroyed by the government's month-long bombardment. Syrian state TV has been showing a big cleanup operation underway there uh, with uh, trucks moving in with uh, bulldozers to get rid of the rubble, people setting to with brooms, etc. And some people, some families starting to move back in with uh, bundles of belongings. But meanwhile, continued reports of excesses by security forces and uh, an extraordinary bit of footage that showed up on Dunya TV, which is a private TV station, but very close to the regime. In fact, sometimes it shows pro-regime material that the state television doesn't even show itself. Now, this footage showed what you can only describe as a massacre, and both sides have described it as exactly that. It's the butchery of an entire clan, 17 people ranging in age from 1 to 85, including a number of women, uh, butchered in their house uh, by who knows whom, because the two sides are accusing one another. The uh, Dunya TV said it was the work of terrorists, and activists actually distributed the link to that piece of YouTube footage on the Dunya TV, saying that these people were martyrs and naming them all, saying they'd been killed by security forces or pro-regime militia. So you can choose who you want to believe. Mm. Either way, horrific footage. Are attacks, are aerial attacks and mortars still going into homes, generally speaking? Generally speaking, it seems to be back under government control. There has been some reports of uh, occasional shells on a number of towns and villages around, uh, for example, at Dara in the far south, around Idlib or places in Idlib province, places in Hama province to the north of uh, Homs 
and uh, various other places. So that, I think, has led the uh, Turkish Prime Minister, Mr. Erdogan, to come up with some very strong language, saying that uh, President Assad's father, Hafez, may have got away with uh, killing thousands and thousands of people in the city of Hama in 1982. But he said Bashar al-Assad will not get away with the massacres, as he put it, uh, that are going on now. What about those Red Cross convoys, Jim, which have been waiting for days for final permission to enter uh, Baba Amr? Will they be able to, to finally go in? Well, they may do when it's too late and it's all over. I mean, it's practically at that stage already. They had been given the official green light to go down there from Damascus on Friday. They've been waiting ever since, being held up on on grounds of security, while meanwhile a big clean-up operation is underway in Baba Amr. So it's frankly a a humiliation for the International Red Cross and perhaps even the international uh, community that they should be uh, given the runaround like that. Baroness Valerie Amos is the uh, special UN envoy for humanitarian affairs, and she's uh, been given permission to visit Damascus tomorrow. What can she hope to accomplish? She wants to have immediate access to all troubled areas, all the stricken uh, parts of the country. And given the form so far, uh, the regime seems absolutely determined to crush all resistance wherever it finds it, and it's not going to let anything get in its way. Uh, The more crucial mission, in my view, is the make-or-break one of uh, Kofi Annan, who goes to Damascus on Saturday via the Arab League in Cairo. He's trying to bridge the gap in a very balanced way between the two camps into which the world is now polarized over Syria. And he has the stature, he has the experience, he has the international diplomatic skills. If he can't do it, uh, I really don't believe anybody can. And we'll see Syria sliding further into civil war and chaos. The BBC's Jim Muir in Beirut, tracking the often conflicting coverage of what's happening in northern Syria. Thanks a lot, Jim. It's my pleasure. It's not just the UN visiting Syria. A Chinese envoy is there as well to press for a ceasefire. China has called for an end to the violence, though China and Russia have blocked any action on Syria in the UN Security Council. The world's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Beijing. Time was when China didn't get much involved in international affairs, beyond funding various Southeast Asian communist insurgency groups in the 1960s and 70s. Now, as a growing world power, China does weigh in. And in the case of Syria, it has used its weight to block international intervention that would oust President Assad. In a news conference today, Chinese Foreign Minister Yang Jiechi was asked about China's position on Syria. On the issue of Syria, as you know that not long ago, a leading official of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs made a statement on this issue. He set out China's six-point proposition and proposal on handling and resolving the issue of Syria. This was a curiously coy answer, given that Yang is the most senior official in the foreign ministry. Indeed, even the original foreign ministry statement on Sunday didn't name the so-called leading official in the foreign ministry. What it did was call for all parties in Syria to cease all acts of violence and resolve their differences through dialogue. A Chinese envoy is in Syria now to try to promote such dialogue, but he's expected to talk only to the government side. China has long been friendly with that government, selling it arms, doing oil deals, and exporting a couple billion dollars worth of Chinese goods each year. It has reason to want Assad's government to stay in power. Many Syrians have reasons to want it to go. Refugees fleeing Homs told BBC correspondent Paul Wood of atrocities by government troops. This family say they witnessed a massacre. On Friday, troops took 36 men and boys from one district, they say, killing them all. 
She shows me how her son's throat was cut. He was 12. By now, an estimated 7,000 Syrians are believed to have been killed since the uprising began a year ago. Senator John McCain said yesterday that he thinks it's time for the United States to step in. The United States should lead an international effort to protect key population centers in Syria, especially in the north, through airstrikes on Assad's forces. To be clear, this will require the United States to suppress enemy air defenses in at least part of the country. The White House has said that President Obama doesn't agree that this is the best way forward. Still, McCain's proposal sounds a lot like the action the U.S. took part in in Libya. And China's leaders didn't like the precedent set in Libya, that people could rise up against their government and a U.N. Security Council resolution could be stretched to allow foreign airstrikes to support them against that government. The Chinese Foreign Ministry statement Sunday said, quote, We oppose anyone interfering in Syria's internal affairs under the pretext of humanitarian issues. And yet, when Premier Wen Jiabao opened this week's National People's Congress, China's 10-day annual exercise in guided democracy, he painted China as a champion of global peace. We will work tirelessly with other countries to advance human civilization, improve the well-being of people in all countries, and build a harmonious world of enduring peace and common prosperity. And also, it appears, of enduring authoritarian governments, regardless of how much their populations want them gone. It's only ironic that a party that itself came to power, leading a popular revolt against an authoritarian government, is taking that stand. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. China doesn't want to intervene, and today President Obama said any unilateral U.S. military action would be a mistake. In the meantime, Syrian activists are trying to make the case for some kind of intervention. Many of those activists are operating outside of Syria. The world's Matthew Bell recently met with a couple of them in the Egyptian capital, Cairo. In the global information war that parallels the bloodshed inside Syria itself, the weapon of choice is probably Skype. These Syrian activists operating out of a Cairo apartment depend on Skype to get information out of a country that's falling apart. We are in in coordination with people inside. People who work here in the office, to start with, we don't do anything. We don't even brush our hair. So all we do is talk to people inside so that we're always in that environment. Rami Jarrah is a 28-year-old Syrian. He grew up in London, moved to Damascus in his early 20s, and then got involved in the anti-Assad movement that started gaining momentum about a year ago. Jarrah left Syria when the pseudonym he was using online was compromised. Now he's helping to build an international network of Syrians called the Activists News Association. Their mission is to disseminate accurate information about what's going on in Syria for Syrians themselves and for the international media. Several major news organizations have picked up stories from them. Jarrah says he's worried about Syria's future. Once it falls apart, it's going to be very hard to put back together again. One part of what we're doing is is to prevent that from happening. And he says to start thinking about what needs to happen after the Syrian regime falls. But in the meantime, Jarrah says the army in Syria is turning its guns on its own people. And that means even though he has mixed feelings about it, he thinks there will be only one way to put an end to this crisis. I think the only 
ethical thing to call for is intervention. The Syrian people are simply calling for freedom. There's a range of daunting possible side effects to consider with any military intervention. How would Assad respond? What would that mean for Lebanon and Israel next door? And what about Iran? Jarrah admits there is no international consensus on how to proceed, and there are also questions about the Syrian opposition, even for those who support them. Dia al-Din Dogmush fled to Damascus last year, and now he's working with Jarrah to set up the information office in Cairo. At first, Dogmush says, I didn't think the Syrian regime could be toppled. Now, I think it will fall eventually. But he says Syria's opposition is not ready. It's too divided. Still, he adds, it's frustrating to listen to the way the international community talks about the situation in Syria. It's always about national interests, Dogmush says, and rarely about what's best for the people of Syria. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Every day we cover the latest news from around the globe, but sometimes we take a step back. That's why we're planning a special edition of The World entirely devoted to the homecomings from Iraq and Afghanistan. If you're a returning veteran of the conflicts there or no one, share your story with us. Tell us what the homecoming's been like. We'll also feature other related stories, like the one of this Iraqi translator who left Iraq out of fear for his safety after American troops pulled out. When I go out and translate for the U.S. Army, people looking at me like, you're not a good guy. You're, you're not a good guy. And some of them say to me face to face that you're going to get killed one day. To share your story, just text the word RETURN to 69866. We'll let you know how to take part. It'll cost no more than a regular text message. Again, text the word RETURN to 69866. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Opposition activists in Russia are pressing ahead with plans for new protests on Saturday. And that's despite the forceful response from authorities to yesterday's rallies against Vladimir Putin's election victory. Riot police broke up the rallies and arrested hundreds of demonstrators. The opposition claims Putin's election was marred by fraud, but Putin and the government reject the allegations. One of the activists arrested yesterday is 26-year-old Ilya Vorontsov. He stood with crowds of protesters gathered in Moscow's Pushkin Square. There was about 30,000 people after the demonstration finished. Sergei Udaltsov, the leader of Left Front, he is one of the leaders of, of the opposition. He, at the end of the demonstration, he said, I want to stay here until Putin will go away from Kremlin. Uh, of course, maybe it sounds not serious, but he said that we have to stay at this square mm. and not go away. So 30,000 people at the square after the protest ended, did a lot of them start to leave or did everybody stay? Yes, most of them started to leave. About 2,000 stayed there. Right. Then, then around 10 p.m., I understand, the police showed up. What happened then? Uh, then I saw that... 300 policemen came from one side, 300 policemen came from the other side, and they surrounded us, 
and started to arrest us. Right. Now, you actually have a friend who videotaped this moment when you, uh, Ilya, were arrested and uh, apparently in the video thrown to the ground. Here's some sound of that. So, uh, Ilya, it looked like there were a bunch of policemen all around you trying to subdue you, fighting you down into the snow-covered ground there at Pushkin Square. Were you fighting back? I'm trying to not uh, let them arrest me, but a policeman kicked me to the nose, and uh, I stopped to fight. Were were you hurt? No, just a little bit. And then the police put you and 300 others who were also arrested on buses, right? Yes, these police buses went to different police stations. Me with about uh, 20 people, and Sergei Udalsov was in my bus too. Uh, we were taken to Alexeyevska police station. As Sergei Udalsov, the, the opposition leader. Yes. Did the police uh, tell you why you had been arrested? They started to write uh, the papers, and they didn't know what to write in the papers, what law we broke. Because usually in these protests, somebody from high cabinets say them what to write. But by Russian law, meetings with members of parliament could take place anywhere, anytime. So this was a legal protest? Yes, that was legal because it was meeting with members of parliament. Were you able to contact your lawyer? How were you able to be released? When I was arrested, I immediately called my lawyer. And also two other lawyers who work for free with protesters. But policemen didn't want to let them go inside. Mm. So what got you eventually released, Ilya? Then, because Sergei Udalsov was with us, member of parliament Ilya Panamarev, who was at the demonstration, he came to our police station and he said to policemen that they had to let lawyers come in. So, Ilya, you're going to have to appear in court. You you may get a fine. Will your experience prevent you from protesting again? No, of course. Uh, I will go to protest again and again until Putin will go away. That's uh, my point. That's our, our goal, to make Russia a free country. Next demonstration will be the Saturday, 10th of March. Protester Ilya Voronsov, who was arrested at anti-Putin demonstrations last night in Moscow and released early this morning. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Russia's government was already facing allegations of election fraud before Sunday's vote. Parliamentary elections in December were also marred by reports of irregularities. To address public concerns ahead of the presidential vote, the government installed webcams in every polling station. That way, anyone could monitor the election. Andrei Zolotov is a Russian online journalist, and he says the webcams ended up recording a lot more than just the voting. It did turn into quite an amazing show because overnight the webcams were already working, but polling stations were not open yet. So, for example, there was a polling station in Kirov in east-central Russia, which was set up in what is known as House of Culture, kind of in a local club. And there was a disco going on. (laughs) Uh, So shortly after midnight, people started to exchange links for that particular webcam, for that particular polling station, just to watch this disco in a stroboscope-lit young men and women dancing to pop music. And then there were also like screenshots. There was a screenshot of an 
AK-47 automatic rifle lying on a desk, totally unattended, in a polling station somewhere in the Caucasus. There was a polling station in the village of Mesedoy, in the mountains of Chechnya, in the Caucasus, where the polling station was actually in a private house. It's a small village, there is no school. So it was in a private house, and a big guy was simply lying on his couch under a carpet hanging on the wall, and thousands of people were watching him all over Russia, maybe all over the world, we don't know. Some of them are quite entertaining, some of them are kind of shocking too, like this man fondling himself. That video was even removed, I think, by YouTube. Oh, really? Uh, there's uh, traditional Cossack dancing, and then there's a woman in what looks like a high school gym kind of doing calisthenics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the been the official reaction to this? Because it was an expensive idea, half a billion dollars to put cameras in 90,000 polling stations, and now people are kind of having fun with it. Some official, like in Kirov, for example, the local officials even like went on the record saying where the disco was a popular show right. overnight. Local officials went on the record and said it did not damage sort of the integrity of the polling station. The bulletins and the boxes were sealed. So the fact that there were young people dancing there kind of as absolutely normal routine practices for this place and so forth. In the meantime, it was a major distraction. I went to watch my, my friend in Vladimir, who was an observer in a polling station, and uh, kind of I made some screenshots and then emailed <laughs> pictures. Do you uh, think some people got so distracted by these videos that they forgot to vote? I don't think so. I think everybody who wanted to vote, voted. Of course, everybody who wanted to be an observer did their work observing the elections. I think it distracted sort of the idle kind of web browsers who would otherwise kind of pay more attention to independent reports. And instead, they were just using it as another reality show. And, and uh, uh, somewhat voyeuristic as well. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's an exploitation of uh, uh, this voyeuristic sort of instinct, uh, which uh, I think did provide an additional color to these presidential elections, for sure. Andrei Zolotov is the editor of RussiaProfile.org and the Moscow News. Andrei, thank you very much. Thank you. Don't miss the sometimes rude but mostly fun Russian election webcam video. It's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how international sanctions impact daily life in Iran. And later, the police, the press, and Britain's hacking scandal. The police have to be clear that there's a difference between unauthorized contacts, which you know, good journalism depends on, uh, and bribery. A conversation with the editor of London's Guardian newspaper, coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Iran was on President Obama's agenda again today. The president reiterated that the United States will not accept Iran developing a nuclear weapon. My policy is not containment. My policy is to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon, because if they get a nuclear weapon, that could trigger an arms race in the region. 
It would undermine our nonproliferation goals. Uh, it could potentially fall into the hands of terrorists. But Obama said there's still a window to resolve the crisis peacefully, and he stressed that economic sanctions are working. What we've been able to do over the last three years is mobilize unprecedented crippling sanctions on Iran. Uh, Iran is feeling uh, the bite of these sanctions in a substantial way. We wanted to test that claim that sanctions are biting, so we called an ordinary resident of the Iranian capital, Tehran. He asked us not to use his name. The economy right now is in a free fall here. You know, it gets worse on a daily basis. And there's no hope for any improvement. It's right. just getting worse. Right. And, and what about you at a personal level? I, I hear you're having trouble kind of paying the rent. Oh, well, of course, I didn't want the whole world to know that. But <laughs> yes, actually, I do, like many other people and my friends. You know, you're, you're living in this apartment, and suddenly, you know, I've been here for two years. Suddenly, it appears I can't afford it anymore because the rents are doubled. And, you know, if you own an apartment or an apartment building, you want a higher rent. You probably lost your enterprise, whatever it is that you did. So you have to make up for it. Right. So, and then that falls, it falls on people like you who rent. Uh, what, what is your income? What is your job? Actually, I graduated from a conservatory as a piano player, but um, it appears I made a mistake. So now I work as a translator in some office. Mm. And, you know, it used to be a good job. It, it covered, but not anymore. Right. And you see many people losing jobs. What about the price of bread and other basic foods? Also going up? Oh, it's, oh, it's soaring. You know, I can't talk for everybody, but what I see, you know, me, my friends, and my colleagues, it, it seems it's getting harder and harder each day for everyone. And actually, I consider myself lucky because I still have a job. Hmm. It, it's not paying as it used to, but, well, it's a job, you know. I'm curious to know who you blame for your current economic hardships. Do you blame Iran for its unwillingness to come clean on its nukes or the U.S. and the Western European countries for the sanctions? Actually, if I may speak on behalf of people I know, I don't think anybody here blames West. You know, there's no reason for a country to, you know, go through so much trouble to get nuclear energy. You know, how much how much energy is it going to produce this Boucher plant? Five hmm. percent? What is that on, on the national grid? Five percent is nothing. You know, you can you can cut back ten percent by you know making more efficient cars, making more efficient everything that needs fuel. So I think what we have here, I don't think. I don't think anybody blames Obama or European Union. There's been a lot of talk about some kind of foreign military attack uh, if the sanctions do not work. How worried are you about that? Is it on your mind at all? Actually, I'm not worried about that, and I don't think anybody is, because we have other concerns right now. You know, Israel has a scary military, no offense, but not as scary as Sepa here. You know, they get creative. They can do things to you that they can't. Most scary thing here is our own government for us. And Sapa is what? Remind us. Oh, it's it's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. So I understand you also have two cats. Uh, they're not exactly dependents, but still you've got to care for them. Is that getting harder? Oh, actually, it's getting hard for them because here we have cat food and dog food, but the quality is 
not good enough for cats. And you have to buy dirt for the litter box and food. And it just gets harder to come by these days because they're not imported as much as they used to. So my Lucifer here is paying the price. Lucifer, that's your I cat's name? With it. They're very understanding cats, not like the other talks I had before. <laughs> well, take good care of them and take good care of yourself. Oh, thank you. You too. Can I ask you just one last question, please? Of course, of course. What What's your concern about not wanting to use your name? Oh, because, uh, you know, I've had previously a few uh, interviews with BBC, and, you know, the intelligence here doesn't handle it that well. They don't like you to talk to foreign media. So, you know, you become a spy and you rot in prison. That's why we're afraid of, of our own government, not the Israeli government or American government, because they're here and they're watching us. A resident of Tehran speaking with us earlier today about the impact of international sanctions on Iran. Some farmers in Spain might feel like they're the target of economic sanctions. The farmers we're talking about live in the town of Navacarnero. It's a small rural village just outside Madrid that's becoming a bedroom community for the capital. The town rezoned some of its farmland ahead of new construction. That's led to an enormous property tax hike for the farmers, as high as 80,000 percent in some cases. The world's Jerry Haddon paid the farmers a visit. For about a decade, beginning in the late 1990s, Spain went on a building binge. Any farmer lucky enough to see his agricultural land rezoned could sell it for huge profits and pitch his fork forever. But the real estate bubble burst in 2007. Naval Carnero, some 20 miles southwest of Madrid, was caught off guard. At a corner cafe, the president of the local property owners association, Paco Navarro, says Naval Carnero's population tripled during the housing frenzy as developers snatched up land and built up apartment blocks. He says some property owners got lucky. Their land went up in value at least 10 times. Investors were coming around with the idea of building, and they'd pay. But now it's all stopped. That's the problem. It stopped, Navarro says, just as Naval Carnero was signing off on this latest rezoning plan. He says the money from building permits would have paid for basic services in town for everyone. But with the collapse of construction, we all got caught out on a limb. Actually, about 300 farmers did. Despite the slump in the housing market, Naval Carnero rezoned their plots last year, expecting that things would turn around. That drove the land's assessed value up, based on what could be built on it. We're talking about some 2,500 acres of wheat fields and olive groves, nearly a mile outside the village. Planners had envisioned homes and light industrial facilities here. 86-year-old Pedro Pablo Perez grows wheat on his 25 acres. The land has been in the old man's family for generations. He's typically paid about $40 a year in property taxes. Then came last year's bill, the first after the rezoning was completed, $15,000. He says his wife nearly had a heart attack. Yo le veo ruinos. Este nos arruina. This tax hike is ruinous, he says. It's going to ruin us all. It's impossible to pay. To be fair, City Hall did waive most of the new tax bills for the farmers last year. Mayor Baltasar Santos has said he recognizes the tough spot the rezoning has put farmers in. Santos was not available for an interview with The World, but he recently told Spanish TV that he believed the zoning change would ultimately benefit everyone. 
estaríamos eh, volviendo a hóspicos suelos que son. We'd be going back to having farmland, he said, which does produce something. But now that the parcels are buildable, they're going to generate big investments, wealth, and jobs. But with the boom over and Spain sinking into recession, many here wonder where those jobs will come from. Nationwide, unemployment stands at almost 24 percent. The government predicts another 600,000 jobs will be lost before the year's end. So where once farmers might have gotten rich, there's now no one to sell their land to. And if they don't pay the new higher tax, the town could seize their land. But this isn't just a story about a get-rich-quick scheme gone awry. In Spain, town governments are desperate for funding. They generally depend heavily on the central government. But in these austere times, the federal tap has been shut off. Spain is under intense pressure from the European Union to lower its deficit. Antonio Beteta is Spain's Secretary of State for Public Administration. That is, the guy cracking the fiscal whip. No hay flexibilidad. No hay flexibilidad. There is no flexibility, he told a business gathering in Madrid this week. No flexibility on spending cuts for regional governments. The deal is done. The only thing left to do is move forward. But so far, Spain's 17 semi-autonomous regions are signaling that they won't and can't move forward without making damaging cuts to basic services. Catalonia, for example, has already slashed health care by 12 percent and shortened the school day in some schools by one hour. Towns like Naval Carnero have been left with no choice but to look for money wherever they can find it, in this case, in farmland. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Naval Carnero, Spain. The inquiry into phone hacking conducted by Rupert Murdoch's British newspapers continues. The scandal, you'll recall, started when it emerged that Murdoch's now-closed News of the World tabloid had hacked into the phones of thousands of people. They ranged from politicians to the relatives of killed servicemen and women to the parents of a murdered teenage girl. Now the Levison inquiry has expanded to examine the culture, practice, and ethics of the press and unlawful conduct within the media. Alan Rusbridger is the editor-in-chief of London's Guardian newspaper. His paper exposed the phone hacking scandal. Rusbridger says he was surprised by the muted reaction to the story when The Guardian first published it. There was a period of about 18 months when we first published it and nobody wanted to know. So what we had was the, the police coming out and saying there was nothing there. The parliament itself, I think, felt intimidated from taking on Murdoch, uh, the regulator. We have a press regulator in Britain. They came out and said there was nothing wrong. And a lot of other journalists just couldn't see what the story was or, for whatever reason, wouldn't tackle it. That made me feel very anxious about the sort of democracy of Britain because if if the normal checks and balances in society aren't working uh, because a company effectively has some, feels it has impunity to do what it likes, then that is a very alarming state of affairs. Do you see this as something that could only happen in the British press? There may be something particular about the British tabloid culture, which is unusually aggressive. So, um, uh, I mean, what it transpired that Murdoch was doing was he had sort of posh papers like The Times and The Sunday Times. He had the broadcasters, which made the money. uh, And he had these very aggressive tabloids, which in turn had outsourced the pursuit of people through illegal means in order to get the dirt on them. So that's a very toxic combination. But he has the same pattern of ownerships in, in America and in Australia. I don't think it would be necessarily a uniquely British phenomenon. 
What about that relationship between journalists and police and politicians? You said that uh, you had uh, London police calling you and asking you not to talk about this. What, well, why? The, what was that? The, the commissioner himself, or the commissioner of police, came to see me. Well, uh, this is what Leveson is looking into at the moment. So uh, he's uh, last week and this week he's he's having all these policemen in front of him. That the judge who's doing this inquiry. And he's trying to get at why it was that when there was such compelling evidence of uh, thousands of people who may have been uh, hacked into, including members of the cabinet, security forces, royalty, as well as celebrities and journalists and the the victims of crime, uh, why the police did nothing. Uh, And that, I think, speaks to a a general coziness. And it's a slightly different issue from the one with with politicians, which Mm. was politicians felt that they needed Murdoch in order to get elected. And they also felt that he was a bad man to upset and that uh, if they didn't do what he said, their private lives might be worked over. So that's why it becomes such a sort of toxic mix of, uh, of circumstances. Well, indeed. I mean, today the former commissioner of the Metropolitan Police told the Levinson Inquiry that the pendulum of police and media relations has swung too far away from openness in the wake of the phone hacking scandal. Lord Stevens said that police officers are now terrified to speak to the press, perhaps an unintended consequence. Have you seen this happening at The yeah, Guardian? I think, I think it's very difficult to get it right. And we wouldn't have been able to do our stories without some unauthorized contacts between the police. But I think the police have to be clear that there's a difference between unauthorized contacts, which you know, good journalism depends on, uh, and bribery. How do you think the, the Levinson inquiry will, will change the way newspapers function in Britain and beyond? I think it'll make us honest. I think it's been a, a big shock to the system to have to go along and account for uh, what we do. I think there will be regulation, which I know is a, an odd idea for Americans, but I think we will have regulation that will not inhibit decent journalism but I think these shocking practices, which you know, shock 99% of journalists in Britain, will not happen in future. And that, to my mind, that's a, that's a good thing. Alan Rusbridger, the editor-in-chief of London's Guardian newspaper, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. When you think of skiing this time of year, you might picture the Rockies or the Alps. One place you're almost certain not to think of is Afghanistan, which brings us to our geo-quiz. second annual Afghan Ski Challenge Championship was held recently. We want you to name the province in Afghanistan where the competition was held. It took place on the Baba Mountains. They're located in central Afghanistan in a province northwest of Kabul. And finally, this province is most famous to outsiders for its huge Buddha statues, which were destroyed by the Taliban in 2001. We'll be back in just over a minute with the answer. In the meantime, congratulations to our geotexting game winners, Hunter in Coral Springs, Florida, Brooke in Anchorage, Alaska, and Mauricio in Highland Park, California. They got to answer our quiz early. You can be an early bird, too, next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So if you wanted to go skiing in Afghanistan, where would you go? 
Tri Bamiyan Province, the answer to today's GeoQuiz. It's home to the Koibaba Mountains, and that's where the second annual Afghan Ski Challenge Championship was held this past weekend. Wall Street Journal reporter Charles Levinson was there. The Afghan Ski Challenge is part of this broader effort, which began about two winters ago, to build up a ski culture in this place to start drawing you know, Western backcountry skiers to this province of Bamiyan, which is this beautiful high mountain place. And about the same time, a, a Swiss journalist and skier decided he wanted to start a race as another way of getting the local Afghans to start skiing because they had never skied before. And so last winter, he held the first Afghan ski challenge. And it's been working. He's definitely got a crop of a dozen or so local boys who are, you know, really serious about learning to ski, learning to guide, learning the mountains. And you're seeing, you go to these villages now and you see these little kids, you know, teenagers with these, you know, rudimentary boards they've taken and they've nailed aluminum cans, flattened tin cans to the bottom of these boards and they tie them onto their feet with twine and they're skiing down these mountains. And so it does seem to be legitimately catching on. Wow. Now, I don't know if you're a skier, Charles, but I'd like to know what the ski conditions are like there, and maybe you can make the skiers amongst us jealous. I am an avid skier. In fact, my first journalism job after college was for the Tahoe world in North Lake Tahoe. Um, <laughs> so the, the skiing is amazing. It's all untouched. Everywhere you look, there are literally unskied peaks. I mean, the potential wow. for first descents there are really profound. Uh, lest any of our listeners think uh, this is an undiscovered Aspen, we should point out there are no ski lifts, no gondolas. The, the, the skiers have to get up the mountain with skins. So explain for our non-skiing audience skinning. Right. So skins were, were originally made from actual animal fur. They're all synthetic today. But basically what they are is it's a strip of fur or synthetic fur that you stick to the bottom of your skis. Um, and you use special bindings that allow your heel to come off the ski so you can with the skins on the bottom of the ski, the ski will slide up the hill, but it won't slide back down. So it allows you to walk up the hill on your skis without sliding down. So you do that. You walk up, up, up the hill with the skins. You get to the top. You pull the skins off, and you ski down normally like you would with your normal alpine setup. Right. And for most of us, uh, once we get to the top of the mountain, you've got to like pause for an hour to catch your breath. Yeah, yeah, it, it was exhausting. The Afghans were, were quite tremendous. Uh, it was funny. The, the race had about 10 Afghan skiers and five, you know, American, European competitors. And the Afghans had only been skiing for, you know, the most veteran among them had been skiing for two winters. And mind you, a winter for an Afghan training there is much less than a winter for us because they get one run a day, maybe two, because they're walking up the hill. They right. can't take 25 chairlift rides a day. Amazing. So they get one run a day and make for two winters. So they were, you know, much, much more uh, beginner skiers than any of the foreigners skiing. But going up the hill, they uh, had a huge advantage. They charged up the hill, and, and they, they zoomed ahead. The foreigners were, were sort of left behind, huffing and puffing. And as a result, the Afghans ended up dominating the ski challenge. So who won? Uh, this guy, Khalil Reza, won. He is a 19-year-old from one of these very remote mountain villages. These villages are, are some of the most remote and impoverished places I've ever been to. You know, they use dung patties for heat. There's no electricity. There's no paved roads anywhere in this province, just about. You know, the, he lived in, he's 19 years old, never been to school, illiterate, lives in a one-room mud hut in this, you know, mountain village with his, you know, a family of 10, seven siblings, two parents. And they recruited him. They said, hey, come, we'll teach you skiing. Hmm. And, you know, he won. And he won a, uh, an Arcteryx jacket, a beautiful Gore-Tex jacket, wow. a Tissot watch, and a nice trophy. Was it only young men uh, skiing in the Afghan Ski Challenge Championship, or were there some young women as well? The Afghanis were only men in the Ski Challenge. There was one French woman who, who skied. They have made a bit of an effort to get women involved. 
and, and they have. I mean, some women have come out and, and started skiing, but there has been. I mean, this is a conservative place. These are conservative rural villages, and there has been some resistance, you know, to pushing too hard on that. So what the organizers, sort of the, the people pushing this project, have decided to do is sort of stress family involvement instead of just you know, women's involvement and with the hope that you get the family out there, it brings the brothers, the father, the mother, the sisters, and, you know, by that means get women involved. Wall Street Journal reporter Charles Levinson in Kabul, he reported on the second International Afghan Ski Challenge Championship, which took place this past week. Charles, good to speak with you. It was my pleasure. You can see pictures of the ski slopes in Bamiyan province at theworld.org. We leave the slopes of Afghanistan for the sandy beaches of Santa Monica, California. That's home for our guest DJ, Tom Schnabel of Station KCRW. Here's Tom's pick for today's Global Hit. One of the albums that came out recently that kind of proves that you can take musicians from different places and put them into a studio and make something really magical is this new record. It's called simply Alma, which is uh, Spanish for uh, for soul or, or, or spirit. And it features a Sardinian-born, classically trained trumpet player named Paulo Fresu. Omar Sosa is a Cuban-born uh, piano player, classically trained as well, living in San Francisco. The third uh, person in this triangle is Jacques Morellenbaum, who was the great Brazilian cellist who worked with Jobim and who worked as well with Caetano Veloso. So you put them all together and you just get something really, really fantastic. <laughs> is a song called Alma. It's from a new album of the same name, Alma, featuring Paulo Fresu, Omar Sosa, and Jacques Morellenbaum. A final track from this album that really caught my ear is something called No Trance. Here you have uh, very modern stuff. Paulo Fresu is hitting the piano harp. There's electronic manipulation of Paulo Fresu's trumpet. It's very modern and very, very trippy. So this final track, for me anyway, is what Miles Davis might have sounded like if he were still alive and making music today. It's called No Trance. album is by Paulo Fresu and Omar Sosa. It features Jacques Morellenbaum, and it's called Alma. For The World, I'm Tom Schnabel. And before we go, be sure to join us in our ongoing conversation online. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash P-R-I, the world. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Marco Werman. That's all for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. Thank you for tuning in.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.